Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we can come together this day and see you more clearly than ever for who you are, the God who has come for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive so that we can flourish in the reality of this good news. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. You know, I arrived here in 2007, and I had 20-20 vision. But as typical with Sherman jeans, it was about 49, 50, 51, things started to get a little blurry. And I'll never forget it, because, you know, you can't, you got to kind of play the part, right? One day, I just casually pulled up, and I put on my glasses, and all of you started to laugh. <laughs> because I need these things to read. And it's quite convenient having a son who's an optometrist because he can get me good deals and all kinds of fashionable eyewear. These aren't fashionable at all. Kim hates them, but that's beside the point. But today's text is all about seeing Jesus from verse 22 all the way to 9-1 for who he is. And what a great thing as we walk through Lent to see Jesus for who he is. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 8, chapter, tw- verse, chapter eight verse 22. Or it's in the back of your bulletin if you're visiting with us. We're glad you're here with us today. Because Jesus teaches us some great truths in today's passage about what it means to be his follower. The first thing that we learn in verse 22 to 26 is that poor sight hinders following Jesus. That's what Mark's trying to show us. Obviously, this man, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him, and so Jesus did. So, and to demonstrate this idea, Jesus shows this truth by healing his sight, glowing, going from blindness to sight. In verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. It was a progressive healing. He opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Go straight home. You see, my friends, this man needed sight to truly see Jesus, and these miracles are not abnormal. Actually, this is normal. Miracles are a restoration of the normal. This is what heaven looks like, and this is what heaven on earth looks like looks like. What is abnormal is what we we get used to. The brokenness and the mess of this world, and we don't even know how to expect God to show up to do such things. And he grants sight to the blind and heals sickness. Now, this isn't a, a, a case for name it and claim it theology, but it is a case to see Jesus clearly, because that's exactly what Mark is showing us. Because of poor sight, misunderstandings about Jesus are everywhere in our culture. We see people who say things such as, well, God doesn't make junk, so he affirms me with my feelings. He affirms me in my identity. God loves me as I am. Therefore, they can live unto their orientations. And those are half-truths, right? God does love me where I am. He doesn't keep me there, does he? Because we're called to follow him. That means i got to take a step in his direction. I have to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. 
And so, my friend, poor sight hinders true following of Jesus. And we need to take note of that as we go to this next section. Because Jesus sees his mission in verse 27 to 33 as one of costly grace. Verse 33. Excuse me. uh, Verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Immediately after Peter confesses it and he gets it right, who Jesus is, he says, yeah, Peter, I am the Messiah. I am the King. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to defeat all evil and injustice, but I'm not going to do that by going to the throne. I'm going to do that by going to a cross. The cross was the epitome of helplessness, the epitome of shame. You're up there, you're stripped naked, you're nailed to it, and everybody can just gawk at you as they walk by. It was the exact opposite of a throne which these disciples still expected after spending all their time with him. That's where I'm going. I'm not going to Jerusalem to live, but to die, Peter. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take power, but to lose power. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule, but to serve. That's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. And notice, Jesus didn't say the Son of Man will suffer. He said the Son of Man, verse 31, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He uses that word, musts. It's one of the most significant words in the entire Bible. It's not that I will die, I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world can't be changed or renewed. Your life can't be renewed, revived, unless I die for you. Well, why is that? I mean, why did Jesus have to die for us after all? Well, lots of books have been written about it, and there's lots of atonement theories. I'm going to try to attempt to narrow these down to three big categories. Number one, Jesus needed to die for us personally. Number two, legally. And three, cosmically. So let's dive into these. First, it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die for us each and every one of us, personally. Scholar William Banstone some years ago wrote a book called Love's Endeavor and Love's Expense, and he says that no matter what, what their experience, all human beings, even from childhood, were deprived of genuine love, know the difference between false love and true love. We all know the difference between fake love and authentic love. He says the difference is in fake love, or false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. So your affection and your love is is conditional. 
You do it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs. It's not vulnerable at all. You kind of hold back so you can cut your losses if necessary. The aim is to use the person to fulfill your happiness, and therefore, it's conditional. But in true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other. Because your greatest joy is in the other person's joy. Therefore, your affection is unconditional, and you give it regardless of whether that person is meeting your needs or not. And it's radically vulnerable. You spend everything. You give it away. You hold nothing back. Then Vanstone says, surprisingly, the real problem is that none of us are capable of all the time exhibiting true love. We can't give it to one another. We, we all want it. We desperately want it. But in one shape or another, all of our love is got a little bit of falseness in it. We need love like air and water, but we can't give it 100% all the time unconditionally. Therefore, there's sort of a mercenariness to our love relationships. We look for people about whom we think, boy, if I had that person's love in my life, it would really affirm me. So we invest our love only where we know we're going to get a good return but you see, when you do that to some degree, that means your love is conditional and not vulnerable because to some degree you're not loving the person for him or herself, you're loving that person for what you can get out of them. Of course, there are degrees of love given and taken and received, but Vanstone is right. Nobody can give anyone else love that we're most starved for, and we're all starving for it. What we need is someone to come alongside and get the ball rolling. That's 100% loving all the time. Who loves us radically, unconditionally, invulnerably, and yet doesn't need us one bit. Who could that be? Yes, Jesus Christ. And we sing about it. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Think about it. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity been knowing and loving each other. Why did he create us? When he didn't need us a bit, why is he redeeming us at such a great cost even though he doesn't need us? he loves us, each and every one of us personally. He wants our joy more than he wants his own joy. He doesn't need us, but he loves us, and that's perfect love, and that's radical, vulnerable, and unconditional. And when you begin to get that and experience that for yourself, you can actually begin to, to love him and love others, and the fakery of it begins to dissipate in your life and you start giving it to other people he died for you and I personally other religions talk about God as love in general ways yet only Christianity claims that God has given us love like this that's radical vulnerable and unconditional it's what we need Christ died for us personally secondly he died for us legally 
Think of it this way. You go to a party. No, you host a party. And someone knocks over grandma's $100 lamp and it breaks. Right? Now somebody's got to pay for that lamp, right? It's $100. Right? Either that person is going to pay for it, or you say, that's all right, don't worry about it, I'll forgive it. I'll forgive you, don't worry about it. Well, you still got to pay $100 to fix the lamp, or you go without $100 worth of light. You see? There's a cost either way. Someone's going to absorb the cost. And this doesn't just work in the economic level, it works in the relational level as well. When someone really wrongs you, speaks poorly about you, robs you of your reputation, that person takes away something from you that you'll never get back. There's a sense of debt that they owe you. There's a sense that justice has been violated and you just can't shrug it off. And once you realize and you sense that debt, there's only one or two ways to go, right? One is you can try to make that person pay. You can try to harm their opportunities. You can hope for and actually affect suffering on their part. Because they made you suffer, you're going to make them suffer. So you try to do that and make them pay. And you can and you do. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? As you're making them pay the debt off, you're making them suffer and harming them because of what they did to you. You're becoming like them. You're becoming harder, colder becoming like the perpetrator. What else can you do? You could make them pay, or you could forgive them. Just forgive them. When you refuse vengeful thoughts, though you want so much to have them, but you refuse vengeful thoughts and actions, it hurts. When you refrain, when you forgive, it can be agonizing. You're suffering. Why are you suffering? Because you're absorbing the cost. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness always entails some kind of suffering. If you've really, truly been wronged, and the forgiver suffers, or you can make the perpetrator suffer, but it's one or the other. The debt just can't go off into thin air. They pay or you pay. And here's the irony. Only if you pay the incredible cost of forgiveness, only if you absorb the debt, only if you're willing to take on the suffering, really is there any chance of seeking justice and any chance of righting the wrong. If you go to confront somebody that they've wronged you and you haven't forgiven them along the way, do you think that there's going to be a chance of reconciliation there? They won't listen to you in a million years. You'll just enhance a cycle of retaliation. But once you have really gone through suffering in the cost of forgiveness so that you have refrained from the need for vengeance in this relationship, can there any hope of being actual any reconciliation coming between you two? It's the only hope we have. So if we know at our human level that forgiveness entails suffering for the forgiver, 
And if we know at our human level that the only way you can have any hope of rectifying and righting wrongs is by paying the cost of suffering, why does it surprise us when God says, the only way I can forgive sins is that I suffer? He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The only way he can get us to be forgiven and pardon us is for him to absorb it upon the cross for us. So we see on the cross him doing eternally and ultimately what we have to do even at our human level on an infinitely smaller level. I must suffer. So he suffers for us personally. He suffers for us legally. Jesus also must suffer for us spiritually, heavenly, cosmically. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, Jesus could have just gone off the cliff and died, right? Just jumped off. That'd be suicide. That's a sin, all right? <laughs> that you don't want to do that. Instead, we're told that the elders and chief priests and the scribes would have him be killed. These were rightful authorities granted them by the Roman government. They should have been standing up for justice, but instead they perpetrated an act of injustice. Jesus was a victim of injustice. Jesus was exploited. He was the victim of oppression. So in that sense, he stands with so many people throughout the ages who knew what it was like to suffer injustice, to be whipped, to stand up to corrupt power and be struck down. He knew what it was like to be lynched. So Jesus suffered the injustice of corrupt human justice systems. And what does that mean? Colossians 2 says, Jesus went to the cross and defeated the powers and principalities in high places. Peter took him aside at the end of verse 32 and began to rebuke him. But turning, verse 33, and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. What does that mean? Does that mean he needed to go to the exorcist like Linda Blair did in the exorcist? I don't think so. There's no indication of that. What it means is that behind the human power structures that exploit and oppress people are demonic forces. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and won through losing and got power and influence through suffering, giving all his wealth away, when Jesus Christ on the cross, by turning the values of this world on its head, the world's glorification of power and privilege and recognition and status and money were all exposed and defeated. Their power was broken over those people who trust in the work of Christ for them. See, if you do trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you and you know that the worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing, really, quite frankly. Even death can just make you something more glorious. Even death can just put you in his arms. Death loses its sting. When it does lose its sting, death no longer has power over you because of what Jesus did on the cross, then nothing has power over you. Nothing at all. Jesus Christ becomes the source of your significance and security, and you don't 
have to have status anymore. You don't have to have power. You don't have to have control. You don't have to, you know, money's just money. Those things aren't the way in which you get yourself, and we'll get to that in a second. They're not the way you justify yourself. They're just things. So power and recognition and money, even death, their power over you has been conquered because Jesus Christ went to the cross and exposed them and defeated those powers. That's why Jesus had to die. He died for us personally, legally, and heavenly. Now, what I just did was give you three reasons Jesus had to die. And if he wouldn't die, our lives could not be transformed by his love. We could not be received pardon and power and forgiveness of our sins. And the world's evil could not be broken over us. But Jesus had to die in order to accomplish those things in our lives and transform us into new creations. Because there are three global theories of Christ's atonement. There's Christus Victor, defeating the powers of evil. Christus Exemplar, changing us and transforming us with the example of his love. And Christ the Substitute, who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died upon the cross in our place so we can be received by grace. That's why Jesus had to die. When Jesus says, I'm a king, he's not going to a throne, but going to a cross, Peter. Therefore, he doesn't stop there. He calls for us to respond. And what does he say? In verse 34, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what does it mean for us to take up or deny ourselves and take up our cross? Number one, it means first, as we deny ourselves, we take on a new identity in him. Because when you think about it, most of what I call me can be very easily explained by my physical drives, my natural proclivities, and what others have said about me and done to me. That becomes my identity. It's only when I turn to Jesus Christ and when I give up myself to his personality that I finally have a real personality of my own. Now, we don't surrender to Jesus just merely to change. That's using him. If you go to Jesus, not for Jesus, but to get a new personality, you really haven't gone to Jesus. But when you do go to him, for him alone, to know him, to grow in him, and to follow him, then you will receive a new identity that can never be shaken. Two, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him means taking up new priorities, new agendas, a new task list. For when Peter hears Jesus is going to Jerusalem that entails suffering, he says, oh no, may it not be. Jesus rebuked him. Why? Because Peter had a, a task list for Jesus for being Messiah. And it didn't have on it crosses, and it didn't have on it suffering. He thought Jesus was going to get him, was going to get him to that agenda for Peter's life. So Jesus rebukes him. But look, you can't have Jesus in your life like that. 
You can't have Jesus with your agenda, your task list. Because the task list at the end is just using Jesus for your means and for your end. Because Jesus is a king. And you don't negotiate with a king, by the way. We have a king, you just lay your sword at his feet and say, I will go where you have me go, my liege. If you say to Jesus, I'll obey you if you're not obeying, you're negotiating. But don't forget, Jesus is not just a king. You know, if he was just a king, you would submit to him and you wouldn't necessarily like it at all, ever. Because he's just a king, you'd submit to him because you have to. But this is a king who went to the cross for you. Why wouldn't you submit to him? Why wouldn't you surrender it all to him when he's laid it all for you? Because we can trust him. Lord, whatever you do, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. Because in the garden, you said to your heavenly father, Father, not my will, but yours be done. How can you come to grips with someone who gave himself utterly for you without giving yourself utterly to him? When Jesus says, take up your cross, he means die to your self-determination, die to the control of your own life, die to your own agenda, and jump on Jesus' agenda for you. He gives you a new identity, a new task list. And third, denying yourself, taking up your cross, means he gives you a new hope. What's that new hope? Verse 1 of chapter 9, truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Some people have thought what he is saying is that that particular generation won't pass away before he returns to earth. That's not what he's saying because it didn't happen. (laughs) And the church has cherished and loved this passage well beyond the death of that generation. Jesus is saying, life in my kingdom starts in weakness, begins with repentance and relinquishment of life, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him, admitting that you need a savor, not just an example for how to be a good Christian. You need someone to actually fulfill all the requirements and pay for your sins. That's weakness. But it won't always be weakness. Because someday, in the new heavens and the new earth, love will finally triumph over hate. Life will totally triumph over death. And in that generation, and continuing on to our generation, we will begin to see in stages the kingdom of God coming in power. Power as he transforms us by the renewing of our minds. They saw the resurrection. Later, they saw Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. But he says, even now, you'll begin to see the kingdom of God starting in weakness, but in the future, more and more, you will see its power. Therefore, whatever it costs you to follow me, it will be made up for infinitely more in the days to come. Lose your life, and you will find it. C.S. Lewis said it this way, 
Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Poor sight inhibits true sight of who Jesus is. Jesus saw his vision that he would have to go to the cross for each and every one of us. Peter didn't see it. But as they continued to walk with him, they eventually did see it. That we're, as his disciples, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, we will find life. In this life, into eternity. How's your sight now? Is it 2020? Let's pray for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a challenge you've given us. We have to lose to find. We have to die to live. We go to the cross to be resurrected. We begin in weakness to give away and everything to find true power. It seems like foolishness to the world to come by the heavenly wisdom. It's a scary thing. You've challenged us to believe and trust in you wholeheartedly. So we come to you now and we pray that you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do so and to embrace it so we can begin to experience the conquest of evil in our day and the things of this world, the conquest of, of the power over us, and we can begin to experience the absolute identity-transforming love of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we can begin to turn to others and to begin to serve not just our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Christ Church, but our neighbors where we live, work, and play with unconditional and vulnerable love that you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.